morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. This is a probably going to be a little thinner class than what we normally have, and I don't mean thinness as to our personal weight, but thinness as to the number of people being in here. The Mardi Gras normally takes away several folks on Sunday morning, but we'll continue with what we're doing this morning. As we continue to talk about Jesus fulfilling the three roles, the threefold office of king, prophet, and priest. Typically, it's prophet, priest, and king. But I felt to put king first because I think that as we look at the roles of Jesus, as we look at God's giving Adam these three offices in order to proclaim the Trinity, remember, each of these offices king, prophet, and priest. The significance of them is that in each one, God is proclaiming something of himself. Each one of these roles, king, prophet, and priest, having to do with one of the persons of the Godhead, where each person of the Godhead in each of these roles is in focus. It doesn't mean that one is in focus to the exclusion of the others because all three are in focus in all of the roles. We understand that. But one person particularly will be in focus or emphasized or accentuated in each of the roles, not excluding the others but at least manifesting one person at a time in each of the roles. And so that's what we're seeing here. And so when the Lord creates Adam in his image, he gives him these three roles to fulfill and manifest the image of God upon the earth. So that what we're seeing in Adam and what we are to be seeing in his descendants, in those of us who are called to be God's image bearers, is that in each one of us, all three roles are to be functioning simultaneously, one particularly maybe at a particular time leading the other two following, and then another time in another situation, one role coming out and another one, and as we see that. And then what we'll see is that all of these three roles, as we're talking about this morning, will be fulfilled in Christ because Adam has rejected. Remember, he's rejected God's call. And so God must send another image bearer, raise up another Adam, to fulfill his purpose. Why must God do this? He, God has obligated himself. He must do this. I know some people say, and I understand the reason for saying this, well, if Jesus hadn't come, we would have no hope. If Jesus hadn't come, there wouldn't be anything, period. There would be nothing other than God. Because when God said, let there be light, he irrevocably and forever committed himself to completely and comprehensively fulfill all of his purpose. So the moment he said let, he made a personal commitment that under any and every circumstance, 
I will fulfill this purpose. So there's no way we can even begin to think, what would have happened had Jesus not come? There's no way to think that way. Because it says, well, maybe in God's purpose, he would not have fulfilled it. Do you understand what we're saying here? Now, next time somebody says that, you don't have to jump all over them theologically, whatever. But at least remind yourself, there ain't no way. And we understand if Jesus not come, you would have no hope. I understand the purpose of that, but I don't like the reference because it doesn't make any sense to me because it doesn't hold water theologically, and at least in, in the way I understand the word of God. So this morning, last week, having gone through the kingly role of Jesus and something about the prophetic role, this morning we get Jesus says, prophet foreshadowed by Moses. Remember, we went through a lot of the prophetic role, the basis of it and the foundation of it and the purpose of it last week <clears throat> or last time we met. Yeah, last week. So remember to bring forward that which we have already said. Now, as we consider Jesus' role as prophet, we must remember that the word of God was God's create, and I'm going to repeat this two or three times as we go through all of this. As you know, I repeat myself regularly. God's word is his creative means of bringing everything into reality. God's word is his creative means of accomplishing his purpose. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. You remember that? And the Spirit of the Lord, remember what? Hovered or vibrated over the waters. Then what does verse 3 say? And God said. Once God said, everything that was not there and nothing was there was created. Now, the first two verses form a very general overview, and then when we get into verse 3, we begin to get into the specifics of how all of this came about. God said the proclamation of the Word of God, the announcement of the Word of God, the application of the Word of God, the stating of the Word of God brought all that was not there into being. And so let's remember that. It is the role of the prophet to take the Word of God that was given to the prophet and to administer that Word in such a way under the leading and the administration of the Holy Spirit that God's purpose would be accomplished through his people. And so you remember Adam was given this purpose and having failed, now Jesus takes on the role of prophet. Again, we talked about a lot of this last week. If you weren't here, didn't get the CD or whatever they call these things nowadays, go ahead and get a copy of that and hopefully catch up. So, God's words, God's reality, God's means of bringing creation into reality was the word. In Genesis, remember, God's intention was that his presence and his purpose would fill the earth. Remember Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and says, be fruitful and multiply and do what? 
fill the earth. God's intention through Adam's obedience was that Adam would take the obedient word of God in Adam's personal life being obedient to God and in proclaiming and giving to his descendants this word that came from God, teaching his wife and his descendants, here is the word of God. And through that instruction and application and administration of the word of God, the people or the progeny or the descendants of Adam were to be people of God's word, people of his image, bearing the word of God, living the word of God, obeying the word of God, and were to multiply within that context. And they were to begin to fill the earth with the word of God and establish the presence of God and multiply, if you would, the presence of God so that one day the entire earth would be filled with the presence of God as the word of God through their obedience and worship would be the absolute life-giving power, the presence of God by his word. And by the way, this should say something to us concerning the place of the word of God in our lives. If as believers, the word of God is not central to us, is not something that we take regularly, daily, and get into and read and think about and meditate on and memorize, we are missing God's purpose. We are living far, far underneath the purpose of God. And one day, one day at the judgment seat, we are going to be judged or evaluated in many areas, very basically of which will be, were you my word people? And to what extent was the word of God important and functional in your life? Don't marginalize the word of God for the satanic deception of busyness. Amen? You, we're not too busy. We just think we are and we give in to the deception that I ain't got the time. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We have the time and <clears throat> the time. We have it. And if you don't have it, I will be glad to pray for you. Now before you say yes, you better ask how I will pray that you have time. <laughs> I will pray that something comes upon you that you have time enough to read the word of God when your body doesn't work in a particular way and now you just have to kind of sit on the throne and have enough time to pick up your Bible and start reading. I'll be glad to pray for you. Listen, let's not fall for the satanic deception. I'm too busy. It's one of the most masterful deceptions I have ever seen. We're too busy. And I don't like hearing someone say, I'm too busy. That's a lie. You have just bought into a lie. The busyness of my life should never take the place of God's business in my life. The busyness in my life should never take the place of God's business in my life. And when it is, 
know that I am serving an idol. I am serving an idol, okay? We just say we're too busy. We are not too busy because God has created us to be about his busyness and not the busyness of the world. Now, that's a dog leg to the left, but I just felt compelled to say something about it. So if you feel you're too busy, don't come tell me about it unless you want me to pray for you. Okay, years after Adam's disobedience, oh, by the way, in Adam's obedience, this is the way God was going to build the kingdom of God. And I want you to begin to see the transition in my terminology here. The kingdom of God, that terminology isn't used for a long time. There's going to be a kingdom of priests and so on, but the kingdom of God, that terminology itself is basically reserved for the New Testament. But Adam was to begin as prophet, priest, and king, and this morning through his prophetic role, to build the kingdom of God through the administration of the word of God. You get the two. You get the connection. He is God's royal son, little s, God's royal son, who also now has been given the authority to be God's prophet, to take the word and speak authoritatively God's word to his descendants and into every situation for the enlargement and the growth and the development of the kingdom of God. That's Genesis. That's Genesis. So you see, we have no difference today than what we had in Genesis. We're just seeing now the fulfillment of that which is where? In Genesis. Remember, the Bible is a comprehensive whole, not just a lot of little stories put together. Years after Adam's disobedience, the Lord gathered his people, remember, at Sinai, at Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. The mountains of Sinai, the particular mountain of Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. So when you see those two words, you get the distinction. The mountains of Sinai, but the mountain within the mountain range of Horeb, the mountain of God. And he gathered his people to Horeb to form them into his nation. How? By through the prophetic ministry of Moses, giving them his word, which is called the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. So God gathers his people together. And through the prophetic word and the prophetic ministry of this man whom God has raised up at that time, Moses, God delivers through. Through Moses' prophetic gifting and authority, the Ten Commandments. For what purpose? To begin to create and codify and assemble and bring together a nation that will be his people on earth. But he does it through the administration, the giving forth, the declaration of the word, which is called what? The Ten Commandments. And I think all of you have heard in Exodus chapter 20. So in Exodus 19... The Lord calls Moses and he said, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you will say to the house of Jacob and what you will tell the people of Israel. And God gave him the commandments, remember, <clears throat> and then Moses came to the people and he delivered to the people the word of God. And then years later, As Moses stood on Mount Nabo 
and looked out and saw the land of promise. Remember that he was not allowed to go in because he struck the rock that he should not have struck. And there's a very specific reason why that was not right. But we won't go into that today. And there was a reason why God said, don't strike it. Well, he did say strike the first rock, but don't strike the second rock. But that would be for another day, perhaps. And he has given this second word, this second proclamation, this second announcement, this reiteration of the commandments of God to the people. Why? Because the original people, remember the original, um, 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 there goes my word, group of people died in the wilderness and all of those up to the age of 20 remember didn't die they were the ones now who come to the land all the ones 20 and over died because they didn't believe you remember that the giants and all that can't go in and we don't trust God so 40 years and God delivered Moses delivers this second word this Deuteronomy second giving of the law and in that, in chapter 18, we find this. Moses tells Israel that he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, a prophet like me, from among you and from among your brothers, and you shall listen to him. What is Moses saying here? I have fulfilled my prophetic ministry, but my prophetic ministry is limited. It is tainted with sin. It is tainted with inability. It is tainted with just I can't be the image bearer that God wants us to be because I am still a sinful man. And I also must have someone to deliver me of this sin. So you see, Moses recognized it. I am functioning as God's prophet, but someone else must come to really fulfill the work that I am doing. I am just a symbol or a type or a foreshadowing of the prophet who will come. So when you look at my ministry, Moses says, you will see in my ministry being fulfilled in another man to the fullest extent. And so even though Moses was a great prophet, he was not able to fulfill all God's intention. That would require another prophet like Moses. So Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, those two verses say about the same thing. This is a very significant prophetic word that God gives to Moses for the people. Expect another prophet. There is another prophet coming. Now you remember, throughout the generations of Israel's history, the prophets came and went. And what were they there for? They were the administrators of the covenant. They were the administrators of the word of God. They applied the word of God. They spoke the word of God. They warned through the word of God. They uh, corrected through the word of God. They led the people through the word of God. They did all of that for the establishment and for the maintenance and for the correction and the protection and for the leadership of God's people as these prophets were given God's word as an overseeing issue and activity and power so that the people of God would be maintained and protected and led correctly. But of course, you remember, the people rebelled anyway. Now, who was this prophet? Now, remember the Lord's instruction in 1815. The Lord says, Moses said, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. What? Listen to him. Remember that? 
You, see, you, you, you know where I am now? Listen to him. All right, keep that command in your mind. Listen to him. Because there's going to another, be another prophet one day that God's going to raise up, and he's going to use the same terminology. The prophet that is going to take is going to be like Moses, but greater than Moses is going to be the one whom God says, listen to him. Okay. So years later, what happened? Jesus is in the wilderness being baptized by John the Baptist. And after Jesus comes out of the water, you remember the, the dove descended upon him for his anointing, for the inauguration of the ministry of prophet, priest, and king. But when the dove comes upon Jesus, what happens? The heavens open for the first time. And the Father's voice from heaven says what? This is, I'm sorry, this is um, in, in Matthew 17. I'm at the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're worshiping Moses and Elijah are there. And Jesus is in the midst of them. And in that transfiguration, Jesus is shining like the bright light. Remember that? The light. And what happens? The voice from heaven says, this is my son. What? Listen to him. It's the same command that God gave through Moses. I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses, like you, Moses. Listen to him. And so you wind up in Matthew 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration on another mountain Moses gives one proclamation in that mountain. On another mountain, there is another proclamation. And it's the same terminology. He's my son. Listen to him. So with this command, God is identifying Jesus as the prophet. He's the prophet. So many years later, and by the way, your notes are a little different than what I'm doing because I redid the notes <clears throat> some kind of way. I sent the wrong thing to, to uh Evan, so my notes are going to be a little different than yours because I kind of, I always do this. I put the notes together and then reassemble them and I sent the wrong set to Evan some kind of way, so I apologize for that. It's all Evan's fault, so let's continue. <laughs> Just want to make sure you know that. So many years later, many years later, Israel had waited for the coming. For many years, Israel had been waiting for the coming of the prophet. You'll see that in the literature. Is that pro the prophet? In fact, when Jesus is there, they say, is this the prophet? Because they saw and heard him speak with such authority, they said they remembered. <gasps> Could this be the prophet? The prophet. Could it be the prophet? <clears throat> and so they waited for that prophet who would reestablish them as God's kingdom on earth. Because they were thinking of a military kingdom and so on. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. You remember that? And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Jesus from Matthew 3. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And this was Jesus' anointing inauguration by the Spirit to be sent into the wilderness and to begin the ministry of the establishment and building of the kingdom of God upon earth. This is the anointing that Jesus receives now to be functioning with power as God's prophet, priest, and king 
for the establishment of the kingdom of God and for the development of the kingdom of God and for calling people into the kingdom of God. This is where it begins with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and the dove descending upon him. That's what is happening here. After being anointed, what does Jesus do? As God's prophet, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness and he confronts and overcomes the lying words of the God of this world. And how does he come overcome it? He overcomes the lying words. He undoes the lie. He, uh, he exposes the lie and the deception for what it is. There is no truth in this. This is not the truth. How does he deal with the lying deceptions and words of Satan? You see, because Satan now has built a kingdom on earth through lies and deception. Do you see that? You remember that? When Adam fell... Satan gained, at least for the short period of whatever the time is, and under the full authority of God and the control of God, really. Satan now is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And how does he function? He controls this world through his lies and his deceptions, through the lying words. Think about it. Something is going on in your life today. Something happens. You get a bad physical report. Something financially happens. Something's going on. There's a terrorism attack down the street. There's whatever. Immediately, what begins to happen in your head? You begin to hear thoughts. Are you with me on this? Am I the only one who's ever had this experience? All of a sudden, thoughts come into your mind. What are thoughts? Thoughts are words. They don't come into your mind like this. They come into your mind. What if? I hope that. I'm afraid about this is going to happen. You're not going to. Words come into your mind. Thoughts, words come into your mind. Isn't this true of all of us? And these words are for the purpose of tearing us down. They are lies and deceptions. This is the way Satan rules his kingdom. As God creates a kingdom through his word, Satan has a kingdom that is under the control and under the manipulation of his lying words of deception. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan is out there even quoting the word of God, for goodness sakes, but when he quotes the word of God, the word of God becomes a deceptive tool in Satan's hand. Why? Well, that's the word of God. Why? Because the purpose of that use of the word of God is deception and not truth. So we can even see people use the word of God in a deceptive and manipulative way. And when they do it, it no longer is the truth. It's a lie. We have to be so careful that when people use the word of God in our lives and against us or we're using it, we must still use it for the purpose of truth. Is it not written, he says. And Jesus combats it one, two, and three. How? It is written. Jesus speaks the truth of the word of God. So he bears against the lie the truth. Assaulting and tearing down 
and exposing as a lie Satan's only weapon. Lies and deceptions. Do we get that? You see, Jesus didn't say, you can't say that. That's not the truth. I wouldn't say that. You just, he just said, boom, boom, boom. He's God's prophet. And that's how he defeats. Shows that he is the prophet. Then after that encounter, what happens? Jesus goes into Nazareth. Now, this is about a year or so later. You'll see the first part of the year in the first four chapters of John, but let's do what we see in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is what Jesus announced. Sorry. In this account, Jesus presents himself, that counted with Satan. He presents himself as the prophet who had come to create the kingdom of God upon the earth by the word of God. And then when he leaves the wilderness, you remember he leaves the wilderness, what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that in Luke 4? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Power for what? The power to be God's prophet, priest, and king. The power to be God's image bearer. The power to announce and create and establish and begin to develop God's kingdom of image bearers upon the earth. The power to bring about the fulfillment of God's creative purpose as stated in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's what's happening here. And so in Luke 4.14, we see this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. You see the Spirit's role here. We said that in each of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, one of the persons of the Godhead is in view. In the view, um, in uh, the person of the Godhead who is in view in the prophetic role of Jesus is the Spirit. But we'll talk about that in a little more detail later on. But just keep that in mind. The Father is in view in the kingship. The Spirit is in view in the prophetic. And Jesus, the Son, is in view in the priest. Well, again, we talked about that already. We'll go into more detail later. And he comes to Nazareth, and he stands up to read the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, to speak the word of God, to apply, to announce, to administer the word of God. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who oppress and to proclaim the acceptable or the year of God's favor. Do you see what he's saying here? We read this and we miss really what's going on. Here is Jesus saying, I am here as God's prophet. I am here fulfilling what God gave to Adam to do, to fill the earth with God's people through the activity, the obedience, the application, the administration of the Word of God. And here he is saying to these people in his hometown, this is what I'm here to do. And then after reading that scripture, Jesus makes the most audacious comment, and they actually are trying to get it killing because he says this, today this scripture, it's from Isaiah, this scripture is fulfilled in your reading. Today, you look at me, he says, I am that prophet. And you can imagine people saying, oh, oh my heavens, oh, blasphemy. Well, of course they thought that. 
And they had every right to think it because they didn't know differently. We think that we would look at that. Oh, no, they had every right to think it because they didn't know differently until God began to reveal it to people. In this statement, Jesus was claiming to be the prophet like Moses. I'm that prophet. I'm the prophet. See, this is what Mark, we, this is what we see in Mark. Remember in Mark 1, 14 to 15, Mark goes very, very quickly in the first chapter. But look at verse 1 of Mark. What does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, some of you reading it with me? The what? The Son of God. You see what Mark 1, 1 is? And so after we go through the preliminary, he was baptized and so on. Right away in verse 14, we have this. Jesus came to Galilee, which is what we just saw in Luke 14. I'm sorry, Luke 4. He came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the kingdom. So you see, in his role as prophet, he is the king who is also a prophet. He's not a king, and then he's a prophet, and then he's a priest. He is a king who is a prophet. He is a prophet who is a king. He is a king who is a priest. He is a priest who is a prophet. He is a priest who is a king. <laughs> Do we see it? It's all together. Okay. In his role as prophet, accentuating the prophetic role, but at the same time carrying the other two with him, then we'll see he will accentuate the priestly role, but also carrying the other two with him, never disassembling these three from one another. In his prophetic role, Jesus was inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth as, fulfilled, as in fulfillment of Genesis 1.28 and the purpose of God in 1.26. <clears throat> now, let me quickly go through this. And by the way, the list that you have here of Moses and Jesus is much more extensive than what I had. I just wanted to accentuate 11 things. But Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18 says, God is going to raise up a prophet like me, Moses said. So what does that mean? It means that when we look at the person and work of Moses as God's prophet, by the way, Moses was also God's king, and he was also God's priest. Remember? Don't destroy them. Kill me. You remember that? And he's God's king. He's the one who's ruling over this. Moses has all three operating in him. Every leader has all three. We all have all three. And so, what do we see of Jesus in Moses' prophetic ministry? We see that it is Jesus who had come to fulfill this promise. So, let's look at some of the ways Moses prefigures or foreshadows Jesus. And I'm just going to take out a few of them out of the list that you had. <clears throat> That's why I was so sorry. It's not assembled really well there. I just got it, and then we put it together better. Number one, both Moses, both, both were born under foreign rule. Remember, Moses was born under Egyptian rule, and Jesus was born when? Under Roman rule. Christ's birth was opposed by Herod, as Moses' birth was opposed by Pharaoh. Remember that? Exodus 1.22, Pharaoh, kill all the little babies. Matthew 2.16, Herod, kill all the little babies. Both men were shepherds. 
Exodus 3.1, while Moses was shepherding the flock of his father Jethro, he looked and he saw a bush burning but yet not being consumed. And he said, I must turn aside and see this wonder. Why? Jesus also, remember, was a shepherd. How do we know that? John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. Both men were shepherds. Moses was sent into Egypt to preserve his life. Remember that? The little ark, the little basket. Jesus was taken in Egypt to preserve his life. Both were called and anointed by God in the wilderness. Remember Moses in Mount Horeb before the face of God? Moses, I am what? Sending you. I am anointing you. What is that in your hand? The staff, the authority, the symbol of God's presence. Take my authority. Proclaim through my name and through in this staff and go to Pharaoh. And he says, let my people go that they may worship me upon this mountain. Jesus was also anointed in the wilderness. We saw that in Matthew or in Luke 3, both of them in chapter 3. Both confronted the God of this world after being called. Remember that? Both of them confronted the God of this world. Moses confronts the God of this world when he throws <clears throat> the staff down and the other serpents and so on. And the staff of Moses swallows them up. Jesus confronts the God of this world in the wilderness. And the word of God swallows up Satan in the wilderness. You see that? Both gave the law of God to the people from the mountain. Both ascended a mountain and proclaimed the word of God. Moses in Exodus 11, you remember? He proclaimed the word of God. God sat there, but it was through the administration of Moses coming up and receiving the tablets and God speaking this word. Through that administration, God gives his word to his people. What does Jesus do? He ascends the mount. Remember that? In Matthew 5, he went up into the mountain. He sat down. What does he say in Matthew 5? He sat down and taught. Now, some people say, say think it's just to the disciples. Some say it's to the crowds. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear he taught the people. And he begins to teach and begins to teach him the law of God. He begins to correct the law of God that had been manipulated and had been uh, twisted by man all the, those years. The, the, uh, what do you call it, the traditions of men that have been nullifying the word of God. So he begins to say, this is the word of God. And he presents the precepts, if you would, of the kingdom of God in the Beatitudes especially. It's like a constitutional convention showing this is basically what the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of God ought to look like. Both perform signs and wonders. Both interceded before God for the life of the people. You remember that in Exodus 33? The Lord says, I'm not going with them. You go, Moses. And Moses says, oh, no, don't send me. You know, don't send me. Blot me out. Blot me out. But go with your people. <clears throat> Jesus' great intercession in John 17 presents himself before the Father. Moses offered his life for the salvation of his people after the sin of the golden calf. 
And Jesus offered his life for the salvation of his people. Both men were willing to die for the salvation of the, his, the people. God spared the people through both men. Through the ministry of both of these men, God spared his people. Remember Moses saying, show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll go. Show me your glory. And God moves the people forward through the leadership of Moses. God slays his son at the cross. Jesus is buried. The third day he's raised again, sends into heaven. And then God begins to move his people forward through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who was sent to earth as a result of the Jesus exaltation as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he sends the Holy Spirit. He says, all authority has been given to me. And then 50 days, 10 days later, that's 50 days after the resurrection, what happened? The Holy Spirit is sent from Jesus. A man commands the Holy Spirit. A man rules in heaven all the affairs of God in all the universe. Amen? A man, a risen man. So next week, what we're going to do is look at some of the ways Jesus himself fulfilled the ministry of prophet. You might be looking at your Bible, uh, your, especially we're going to emphasize probably more the book of Matthew, but whatever. And, and look how many times Jesus spoke, he said, you know, and all of that, and all this creative work that is happening under the prophetic ministry of Jesus. By the way, any of you, and we're not pushing them, we're just saying they're available. We have put together all of our notes for the last class in Colossians and then the class or the Genesis and um, the tabernacle. So any of you wanted any of these, we have a couple up here. If you, we need any more, we'll be glad to make them for you. So see you next week. Thank you. <clears throat> and we'll get more for you if you need some more. <laughs>